0: Came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper.
1: Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused?
0: Radio waves, radio waves,
1: radio waves, she
0: sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday, the 21st of March. 2019. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. Our guest astrophysicist for episode 78 is Ryan Ridden, who is a New Zealander PhD student who puts ultraviolet detecting telescopes up in balloons above the ozone layer to detect cataclysmic events in our cosmos and that's followed by Dr. Ian Astroblog-Musgrave, who is a university toxicology and pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy space science and astrophysics but right now we'll cross to Canberra and speak with Ryan Hello Ryan Hello Brendan Today we are speaking with Ryan Ridden who is a PhD student at the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Australian National University in Canberra. His research uses a telescope that detects ultraviolet wavelengths attached to a balloon high above the atmosphere. He also occasionally uses data from Kepler and TESS space telescopes to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, so I have a a nice broad range of things I get to play with. My interest is telescopes fairly high up, though, it seems.
0: Excellent. So before we talk about space telescopes and your ballooning ultraviolet research career and mm. how you put red cars with stuffed kangaroos nice. <laughs> up on the edge of space, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Ryan, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Sure. Sure.
1: So I grew up in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I did my undergraduate degree in mathematical physics at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch. And how I kind of got into astronomy is a bit of a back and forth story. So when I was younger, my older brother was really interested in astronomy, and he would drag me outside quite often to look through our telescope and would talk about space and that kind of stuff. Um, So I kind of followed in his footsteps a bit.
0: Excellent. Now can mm-hmm. you tell us about your earlier school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change?
1: When I was in high school, one of my great goals at university was to take some courses on general relativity and quantum mechanics, because that was what I had kind of set my mind on to doing. So I, I got to the end and I achieved that goal and I had fun doing those courses. But when it came to the point of trying to work out what I actually wanted to spend my time researching, it became apparent that I needed to go back to my roots, as it were, and what my brother had kind of introduced me to all those years ago in astronomy. That's the topic I always come back to, and it's the topic I always uh, take immense pleasure of talking about. And through high school, I had a number of fantastic teachers, uh, one of which, uh, Ian Chinnery, my physics teacher, he always encouraged me to do some kind of higher level physics study. So I can probably owe a lot of uh, where I am now to that physics teacher.
0: Very good. Now, you were probably still at school in 2011, and about 10 kilometers from the epicenter of that huge earthquake that hit New Zealand. Scary and fascinating stuff like tectonics, and yet you still went for astronomy.
1: It wasn't too bad for me, fortunately. So my family lived quite far out of Christchurch itself so in fact the first earthquake that happened well I can't remember now it might have been 2013 in yep. the middle of the night that was closest to that was a bit scary yeah it was kind of bizarre because aftershocks following the big earthquakes just kind of became part of daily life you would kind of come to expect the ground to shake several times a day and in some ways it kind of miss it, missed it after it just stopped forever. It didn't feel like it should have done because it was years of this kind of aftershock business happening. But um, as you probably would have seen on the news, it was a very devastating event for the city. Unfortunately, a number, a good number of people died during that event. But it was a big wake up call to a lot of New Zealanders in that we are living on this very young country, which is still undergoing a lot of changes geologically speaking and the point about um, Geology is it's very interesting and I, I do, do enjoy Dabbling in it every now and then but there was At the time people were of course frightened of what was going to happen next So then the media did a big no-no in my books and I remember this quite clearly They went to Ken Ring this fellow who had used Moon phases to predict long-term weather trends.
0: Oh, yes, and
1: he was claiming that using the moon, he could predict when the earthquakes were going to happen. <laughs> so, of course, the media saw this, like, oh, yeah, let's get on to him because, I don't know, it's going to get us views in, I guess, the most pessimistic sense. And he would appear on TV, um, on the regular news out quite frequently, saying, like, oh, the moon's getting quite large, so, you know, you might expect a big earthquake on the state," which was, of course, utter garbage. Though the moon does have pretty reasonable gravitational influence on the Earth. I mean, it raises the, the ocean tides along with the sun. And it does deform the bedrock ever so slightly. But it doesn't impact the crust nearly as much to actually break it and make it jostle around and create earthquakes. Yep. So it does have an influence, but it's not that strong. And there was one occasion where here was on the news and he was saying that if you imagine the solar system, if you had the sun as the size of a basketball, Jupiter would be the size of a grapefruit. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, that's dead wrong, because if the <laughs> sun was the size of a basketball, Jupiter would be about a ping-pong ball, not a, not a <laughs> grapefruit. If Jupiter were, then we would be living in a binary star system, and that would be a completely different place to live in.
0: Fantastic. The difference between science and the misinterpretation or pseudoscience
1: Yeah. I was amazed at how how pandering the media was, these pseudoscience ideals. But at the same time, you had a a large number of people who are rightfully afraid. And you had this man who claimed to have answers to their fears. So perhaps it was a natural uh, reaction, but it was uh, disappointing from my perspective.
0: Exactly. It's almost astrology. Thanks, Ryan. So Back to your career, after your Mm -hmm. successful school career, you completed your bachelor's degree with honours in mathematical physics, theoretical and mathematical physics in New Zealand, and then moved to Australia, to its stable capital, for your PhD. Can you tell us a little about that transition, possibly not too much culture shock, but with amazing astrophysics happening all over the world, What made you select the research school at the Australian National University?
1: When I was in my honours year, I needed to start thinking about what I was going to do next. Uh, And it just so happened that an astronomy winter school was advertised at the ANU. Uh, So I saw that and applied to it and went along even though I was technically in my honours year, I wasn't technically in the, the undergrad stream they're looking for. But this was run by Brad Tucker, who you've had on the show before. And we talked quite a bit about stuff during this trip. And he mentioned to me some projects he had running. And one of them in particular really caught my interest. It was this kind of crazy project where he was talking about putting a telescope on a high-altitude balloon and flying it around for months at a time to do an ultraviolet light survey of the sky so we could pick up things like supernova just when they blow up or even look at the atmospheres of planets around other stars and to me my two main interests in astronomy were and probably still are cosmology with exploding things like supernova Hmm. and the atmospheres or just in general exoplanets themselves these planets around other stars so it was the first time i'd ever heard of someone actually put forward a project that kind of captured the two main things I was interested in. So I kind of ended up jumping at that, and then Brad thankfully accepted me as a student. So I've been working on that through my PhD, as well as working on other stuff with the Kepler Space Telescope and the TESS Space Telescope.
0: Okay, so now you're three years into your doctorate. Tell us what question you are addressing there and how you're going about answering it. And a bit later, we'll get into the nitty gritty of what you're doing up there.
1: Yeah. So there are a kind of two, two different things you could say I've been trying to address related to the two different projects, one with Kepler and the one with the balloon telescope. Yep. So with the balloon telescope, the main science case that we wanted to address was to do with a particular type of supernova. So you may have heard of something called dark energy before. This yep. mysterious thing which is pushing the universe apart faster and faster, making the universe expand at an accelerated rate. So we get a lot of our information on dark energy by using type 1a supernova, so a particular type of exploding star yep. to work out distances in the universe from which we can then calculate cosmology.
0: Yep.
1: So we know that the type 1a supernova are, in general, a pretty well-defined system. You have a white dwarf, that's the core of a star like our Sun, which that died, and there's material falling onto that white dwarf. And eventually, the white dwarf will exceed some kind of mass limit, often called the Chandrasekhar mass. Yep. At which point, the white dwarf will detonate in, in an outstanding explosion, which is several billion times as bright as the Sun, so you can see it from enormous distances. So we know this pretty well, and because we know what generates these detonations, we can standardize them and use them as distance measures in the universe. But there are still some things we don't quite know about them. So we have a good idea of the origin of the system with stuff falling onto the white dwarf, but perhaps it's a bit more complicated than that. Perhaps you could have two white dwarfs that are spiraling into each other in their orbits, and perhaps one of them gets kind of torn apart and accretes onto the central white dwarf and yeah, that one blows up or they just collide together and explode or perhaps you have a star orbiting the white dwarf accreting material onto it. So you could have these different situations which may lead to different intrinsic brightnesses of these supernovae. Yep. So our standardization process, making these supernova measuring sticks, might be wrong on some level. Yep. So what we hope to do was use this ultraviolet telescope to search for supernova in their very early stages to try and find evidence of say a companion star that's feeding material on it because you can imagine it if you have a supernova blows up in the center of the system all of the materials rushing out from the center and if you have a companion star which is just calmly orbiting all of that material is going to rush out and collide with your star and it's all going to build up and make a very hot dense region and when the star kind of gets blasted away you expose this hot region which emits lots of ultraviolet light. Yep. So if we can find these signatures of early ultraviolet light excesses we can actually determine more precisely the detonation mechanisms of supernova these type 1a supernova which can then have flow-on effects to understanding how the universe is expanding. So that was that kind of the, the big push for that project. With the Kepler and TESS projects, we're trying to discover events that occur on extremely short time scales. So uh, kind of a growing area in astronomy is something called the time domain area of astronomy, yep. where you're wanting to push your observations to shorter and shorter time domains. So at the moment, supernova physics is kind of stuck around the day time domain. So you can only really see events that Evolve over the course of a couple of days, so they get bright and they fade away over a couple of days Yep, but we were interested in seeing well is there things that you could pick out that evolve on timescales of a day or shorter So using data from the Kepler Space Telescope, which takes images every 30 minutes I'm searching the Kepler data to try and see if there are Events people haven't seen before and there's one or two that I've come across already which are pretty exciting And we're also using the TESS telescope to do a much larger area of sky over 30 minutes, a pretty good area of sky every two minutes. So this is kind of unprecedented levels of time scale that we're dealing with. We're trying to find explosions that might happen in the universe, come and go over the course of like half an hour or something. So these would be very likely be pretty exotic things. We may not have seen these before. They may We may not have good descriptions of the physics acting on them so if we can find these things we can try and test our models of detonation mechanisms and all this kind of fun stuff to see what they are and how many we should expect to find and what their impact ultimately is the elements in
0: the universe sensational so okay can you tell us now about the technology that goes into your high-altitude balloons? How high do they go, for example? What instrumentation is on board and how you retrieve them when they return to Earth? And what data do you extract from your payload?
1: So we're still kind of in the development phase. So we're still working out how everything should, should go together. But we've done some test flights, as you might have seen, Um, which were um, put around on on Facebook and the likes, which were super fun events. So I'll give you a rundown of perhaps the system that we're wanting to use. Okay. So with these balloons, we're going to be putting fairly small telescopes on them, uh, about 30 centimetres across in their primary mirror. So that's extremely tiny compared to, like, the the modern ground-based telescope, which is 10 or so metres across. Yep. But... It serves the purpose for what we want to do. We just want to take short, deep images of the sky and tile, look at as much of the sky as we possibly can. So these balloons would stay up just above the ozone layer, so around 25 or so kilometres up in the atmosphere, and I'd float around for several months while these telescopes would go about their business imaging patches of the sky and relaying the information to us. So these Images will just be the same as what um, pretty much any other telescope produces, Uh, a nice grayscale image which only records intensity. So you'd have a black background of pixels with stars and galaxies and stuff appearing as white points on that. So that's what we're aiming for. We've done a few successful test flights of a spectrograph which we've developed to measure... How bright the sky is at the wavelengths we're interested in it might not seem like an obvious thing that we need to do but when you're designing a new telescope system you need to account for every potential source of noise every bit of signal that wouldn't come from one of your targets so we've built the spectrograph and we've flown it and we've recorded the brightness of the sky at the wavelengths of light that we're interested in studying and then we can use that to build upon our telescope model and make sure we understand how sensitive the telescope will be, and with that, understand how many supernova we should expect to find, if we should expect to detect any signatures of atoms and exoplanet atmospheres and all this kind of uh, fun stuff. So it's still very much an ongoing project, but it should be pretty awesome when it gets going, because you could imagine, or we can imagine that, Wouldn't be too unreasonable to have several of these telescopes kind of flying in a little constellation, doing all of their observations together, and we pull it back down and run through all the science and try and find stars that are exploding. So it's all all about hunting those exploding stars.
0: Fantastic. And what about retrieving your data?
1: That's a good question. So I'll give you a bit of background. So we chose to do it on a balloon platform instead of trying to send a satellite into space, because space is extremely expensive. Yep. As you could imagine, like launching space costs a lot of money, and not only that, designing and building something that's space-ready for a number of years is a substantial investment as well. Yep. But with balloons, they can be pretty cheap, and the technology has developed to a point now where you can have balloons floating around for months at a time, which is kind of ideal for us. So with these balloon situations, we have a, a problem of how do you get the data back? Do you want to try and beam the data back uh, through, through some kind of radio transmissions? Or do you want to have the balloon's payload be recoverable and all this kind of stuff? Yep. At the moment, we're expecting that the balloon payloads should be recoverable, though it's always good to have redundancy measures in place because if you have Your telescope going around, minding its own business, doing its observations, collecting data for several months at a time, it just so happens to land in the middle of the ocean, that's not too useful. So (laughs) we need to make sure that these things which could happen, we're ready for those things. So although it's cheaper and easier in some regards, it does offer its own unique challenges.
0: Fantastic and you mentioned before it's certainly a fun project and I've been following it on Twitter and Facebook. You've got Kylie the kangaroo riding around in a red car. Okay, well tell us about Kylie.
1: Yeah, so the main engineer in our balloon group, James Gilbert, upon the first launch of this kind of general balloon project stuff at Mount Stromlo, he brought along this little souvenir kangaroo which he dubbed Kylie. And he said to us that Kylie was now to be our mascot. So for every flight that's flown, not necessarily to do with this project that I've been talking about, but other cool things I've been doing with schools and the likes, Kylie's gone up on every one of the balloons that Stronglow Group has sent up. So the last one was easily takes the cake as the best we've had so far. So James Gilbert decided it'd be a good idea to get kind of like a, a kid's plastic toy a car and put Kylie in that and <laughs> suspend her away from the, the uh, payload so that we could get something which is very reminiscent of SpaceX's launch. I think it was last year with Starman and the Tesla Roadster. So, so that, that's got to be like one of my favorite projects. And there's not, it's not too many projects seen where you can get s- such kind of crazy cool photos out of it.
0: Fantastic, and I'll put in our show notes how people can follow Kylie on Twitter and find out what's happening there. Tell us a bit more about your team. We know that teamwork is an amazingly powerful tool in astrophysics. Can you tell us who your team is and how you define and realise your team goals and how do you operate and communicate effectively? Yeah,
1: so... It kind of grew naturally so as as most teams tend to do in academia. So my supervisors Brad Tucker is one of my supervisors and my other one is Rob Sharp So Brad is kind of the end of the more supernova end of trying to discover like these early Explosion mechanisms that we talked about earlier Uh, Whereas Rob Sharp is more focused on instrumentation so in the early days, Rob and I worked quite closely together to try and understand what kind of system it was we wanted to build. So Brad and I would talk to each other about like, what were the science cases we wanted to do, and of course Rob had input on that as well. But Brad kind of stepped away when it got to the instrumentation section, so then Rob and I would focus on that and would work together to kind of build kind of a model of what we'd expect the telescope to do, and with that... We could see if it was actually going to meet the science cases that we wanted to use it for. So then after we got the ball rolling and had a few science cases, which we knew we could meet if we built the right system, um, that's when James Gilbert started getting involved. And he was definitely a very valuable addition because he's a fantastic engineer and had experience in doing balloon launches before uh, with his time at Oxford University they did this kind of thing for uh, public outreach so he took that knowledge and applied it to this situation and helped us immensely there and then his electrical engineering skills and the likes were immensely valuable in actually getting our instrument that could detect the brightness of the sky actually flying so we're still working together on this and we've had a, a recent addition to the group Penelope King she's also an engineer and she's been working on kind of improving the designs of what we've got to make it more durable and ready to go on longer missions It's kind of an accreting process is when we get to a point where we kind of need more people to help us uh, Deal with something that we don't really know how to do uh, We'll find s- someone else will kind of come along and the, their expertise will nicely fill that hole we have in the group
0: Fantastic Ryan We've got some listeners who enjoy putting on the propeller head. Would you like to do a little bit of a dive into ultraviolet astronomy and why you're attracted to that as a research tool?
1: Yeah, so definitely I can do that. So one of the things that interested me from the get-go with ultraviolet astronomy is it's not something that's really been done too much. It's difficult to do. So... The reason it's difficult to do is because of our lovely friend, the ozone layer. Yep. So for us, Australia it's not particularly as helpful as in other places of the world. But it is still very helpful because it blocks most of the ultraviolet radiation coming to the Earth from the sun. So we don't get horrible skin diseases pretty much immediately when we go outside. So that's a plus in my book. But it's also not a good thing for astronomers in some ways because just as it blocks out the sun's ultraviolet radiation it blocks out the same light coming from distant stars and galaxies so the stuff we would want to study to try and understand things in the universe so the question i guess you could ask is well why is ultraviolet light of interest well there's a few different reasons and one of them which is particularly relevant with the supernova case is that ultraviolet light kind of traces out High-energy processes that happen in the universe. So if you imagine the spectrum of light in your head you have a red light and radio down one end That's got yep. a very low energy per photon per bit of light And if you go to the other end you have blue light then you get ultraviolet light Then you get up to x-rays and gamma rays and that kind of stuff which have a much higher energy per bit of light Yep, so this ultraviolet light is still kind of behaving like normal light so we can build detectors which can detect it fairly easily uh, but it still traces a different different types of processes than optical light will so more energetic and perhaps devastating processes yep so the classic case as i was talking about before is this kind of detonation of the supernova with that with optical light you can't really see Material being jettisoned from the central white dwarf in a type 1a supernova running into its companion star and that star getting blown away But in ultraviolet light the events actually quite bright so you can see this very energetic and very I guess destructive event quite easily in comparison and There are other things which ultraviolet light is also very useful to use such as with gravitational waves so this was one of the earlier science cases that we worked on, is that if you have two neutron stars, and those are cores of stars that are just about eight or so times more massive than our sun, when they die, they'll die in a big supernova, a core collapse supernova, and they'll leave behind neutron stars as their remains. And if you have a neutron star pair in orbit of one another, they'll emit gravitational radiation, as we discovered two years ago now, And they'll eventually spiral down and collide and produce something called a kilonova as well as gravitational uh, radiation that can be detected with detectors on Earth now. And it turns out, this was the first paper I actually wrote in my PhD, that if you have an ultraviolet telescope uh, looking for these things and you spot them early enough, you can actually get lots of important diagnostic information on these merger events from ultraviolet light because it's extremely sensitive to the conditions of that colliding system. Cool, Um, yep. So you can have conditions being like the inclination with respect to us, so is the colliding system orbit, is it kind of edge on to us, or is it face on, this kind of thing, and the amount of mass that gets ejected in the merger and all this kind of stuff, uh, we could actually constrain pretty well with early ultraviolet observations. So it's very useful for energetic processes, but it's also useful for exoplanet science, as I mentioned before. So with exoplanet science, we're interested now not so much in discovering exoplanets because we've found thousands of them and they're certainly interesting whenever we find them, but it's more to do with characterization of these exoplanets. So what is the atmosphere like if it has one? Is it like a Jupiter planet or is it more Earth-like? And if it's Earth-like, does it have signatures of oxygen in its atmosphere or other things you might consider to be traces of life on that planet? Yep. So with ultraviolet light, you can actually start to probe these questions. So what you can do with ultraviolet telescopes is you can measure the the dip in brightness as The planet goes in front of its star relative to us So the planet kind of casts a little bit of a shadow on us and we can see that dip in brightness Yep, and if you have sensitive enough equipment So this is known as the transit method of exoplanet detection so if you measure the depth of the dip or the size of the shadow if you will yep of this planet in different wavelengths of light you can actually construct the atmospheric profile of this planet. Wow. Because the atoms in the exoplanet's atmosphere will scatter light differently at different wavelengths. So if, it has, if it's like a hot Jupiter, a Jupiter-sized planet close to its star and has an extended hydrogen atmosphere, that hydrogen atmosphere will scatter the ultraviolet light much more than it will, say, optical light. So you end up with a much larger shadow in ultraviolet wavelengths from that planet than you would, say, in red light. Yep. So from that, you can make the conclusion, right, so this has a large hydrogen atmosphere. In the case of small Earth-like planets, what you'd be interested in trying to find is the very same problem that stops ultraviolet astronomy from being useful from the ground. You'd want to look for a change in radius, which indicates a radius of the shadow, that is, that indicates that there might be an ozone layer around this exoplanet. And if you can find that, you know that that exoplanet has a surface which is protected in large part from uh, radiation from its star and from space. So that would be a pretty uh, promising sign if you're going forth to try and find candidates to do more, more detailed studies try and find life. If you can find there's an ozone layer, you know that there's one of the conditions met for life, or at least the conditions for life on Earth. So that's kind of the most interesting application for ultraviolet astronomy in terms of exoplanets.
0: That is absolutely sensational. It's like you're capturing the DNA of an exoplanet.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Ryan. Now, the mic is all yours, Ryan, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science or science denialism or, mm, or yeah. science career paths or equity or diversity, our quest for knowledge or even uh, science outreach. And by the way, your mm. Ryan Ridden YouTube channel is fantastic. <laughs> and oh, thank you. And I'll be encouraging our listeners to subscribe to Ryan's YouTube channel. And um, in the show notes, we'll tell people how to find it. It's pretty easy to find, though, if you just put Ryan Ridden into YouTube. Sorry about that diversion. Back to you. The mic's all yours. Ryan, take it away. Thanks.
1: So I guess my personal vendetta in society at the moment is science education. It has been for quite some time now. Because as we've seen, I think, through the past years in particular, there's a growing problem with science education. It's perhaps being misrepresented in the media and all this kind of stuff. And your podcast, as well as others, do a fantastic job at actually putting personalities to science and faces to research, which is fantastic. But I've, I've always kind of had this problem, which I've, I've wanted to get into. And perhaps one day we'll get there. But... You can see it now in the anti-vax movement and now with uh, climate change denial and all this kind of stuff where there's clear evidence, undisputable evidence that these things are true and that they're a problem, but you have parties of people who are actively campaigning against it or just don't really care for, and especially with climate change, it's a big problem because, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, we're reaching a point where... Uh, if something's not done soon, it's pretty drastic what's going to happen. Yep. And it seems like it could be the case that we, other scientists shouldn't perhaps be la- leaving it up to the climate scientists anymore. You know, there should be a, perhaps a more unified voice all across science saying that this needs to happen, action on this. But in general, I think that getting towards a, a better Basis of scientific literacy in countries is always more important And that's something I've, I've always tried to, to pursue and I've tried to help students learn more about science That's one of the reasons why I started the YouTube channel because it's just something which I could talk about and tell people about cause Some of the cool things which I've come across and just try and boost understanding about things a little bit So a large part of all the outreach I do is just to try and inspire uh, new generations of people to get into these fields and, and not necessarily do research in them like I'm doing but just be interested and maintain an active interest in, in science because it is extremely important now in society. If uh, we lost all of the scientists in the world tomorrow it wouldn't take long for society to collapse I, I think. So that's kind of my main rant is that's just reminding people how important scientific literacy is. And uh, you must also, in some ways, trust scientists, but also be sceptical of, of the claims, uh, but not, not so much so that you ignore all the evidence that's weighted in favour of the decisions.
0: Fantastic, Ryan. Now, is there anything else that you'd like us to watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on?
1: that's that's, that's a good question so there are lots of really cool stuff that's happening in space at the moment um i I can list a few of them which have just happened which might your listeners might want to look up on (laughs) so there was in the weekend um there was actually hayabusa 2 one of japan's great flagship missions uh, had visited an asteroid and actually fired a little pallet into the asteroid so uh, to collect material from that asteroid. So, Japan is now the first country in the world to, to shoot an asteroid, which is kind of cool. There are other asteroid missions that are going on, all this kind of fun stuff. But, upcoming things, there's for astronomy, there's the um, James Webb Space Telescope, which is when that eventually gets launched. Uh, yep. It's becoming kind of a joke in the community now, but it will one day, I'm sure. Yep. Uh, when that gets launched, it'll be fantastic It'd be absolutely game-changing i'm sure and that won't happen for another couple of years now but perhaps a more immediate thing coming out is you should definitely keep track of the Tess science releases the transiting exoplanet survey satellite yep that was launched last year and it's having data releases regularly now and it's surveying all of the brightest and closest stars to us to detect planets around them So far, it's found three new exoplanets, I believe, but they're expected to find on the order of something absurd, like 10,000 new exoplanets. So there will be some particularly amazing ones that come out of the test survey. I'm almost guaranteeing you that. So do keep your eye out on that. Something else which I guess isn't necessarily part of my field, but I find it quite exciting, is the Event Horizon Telescope. Oh, yes. Some of you may have heard about this. Have you had anyone to talk about that before?
0: No, we haven't had anyone on the show, but on Tuesday night I watched Tamara Davis's show on ABC TV, oh. and that was beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so the Event Horizon Telescope will be absolutely remarkable. So for those that don't know, they're effectively connecting up radio telescopes from more or less the South Pole to the North Pole, and the effect is that they're creating a telescope with a collecting area the size of the Earth. Yeah. And this will allow them to effectively image the event horizon of the black hole at the center of our galaxy and a few other nearby galaxies. So this is super exciting to me because who who doesn't love black holes, right? And we'll actually be able to probe these, these crazy things and get observations of them for the first time. And Perhaps you might see some signatures of... Hawking radiation, that could be exciting, or you might see just material all flying around these things. So the results of the Event Horizon Telescope are certainly something I've been looking out for. Every now and then I'll Google it just to make sure I haven't missed, <laughs> missed something that's come out. Because there's a lot of stuff happening in astronomy, and I could just go on forever.
0: Yes, it's just awesome. sag eh? we've got your number. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'd like to thank you now. Well, thank you so much, Ryan Ridden. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's always fun to
0: talk about space. Excellent. Okay. See you, mate. See you. Next, we cross to Adelaide for our regular observing and astrophotography segment with Dr. Ian Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brandon. Great to be speaking with you again, and what a pleasure it was to be involved with Terry Lovejoy's experiment to measure the parallax of the moon and thus its distance from Earth. It was indeed. In fact, that was going to be my tangent today, was talking about that experiment. Excellent. Well, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks?
2: In the sky, next two weeks, as for the uh, previous weeks, we've had the sight of ruddy Mars low in the western horizon. It's still struggling to be seen, and it's still the brightest object above the western horizon in the early evening, just after full dark. But if you are watching over the next few days, you'll see Mars head towards the Pleiades Cluster and the Hyades. And in fact, by the 29th and 30th, Mars will be right next to the Pleiades. But before that happens, of course, by the time this episode goes to air, we'll go out roughly about when the uh, equinox occurs. Now, for us in the southern hemisphere, it's an autumnal ex- equinox. As summer hopefully recedes. Uh, I don't know about you, though, the, uh, the lot recent temperatures are still in the summer range, and we're looking for another very hot one <laughs> coming up in the next week and in the northern hemisphere, it's spring equinox. So at this time, the sun is rising and setting almost directly west, and the days and nights are approximately equal. Now, for those of you who live in cities where the streets are on an east-west grid, you may have a chance to see Cityhenge. Now, there's a number of iconic cities where, at a particular time of year, the uh, setting sun lines up with one or other of the streets Adelaide, I believe, in the next couple of days, the setting sun will line up directly with Rundle Street. So this will be a very interesting thing to observe. You may want to check up if you have a city with a good east-west grid and buildings sufficiently high. Well, the people who
0: live in the western suburbs will be pretty upset, Ian, because they'll have the sun right in their eyes when they're travelling into work both ways. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel their pain
0: So this is a, another very good reason to take public transport into work
2: It's an excellent reason for taking public transport into work But the 21st is also another interesting phenomenon The full moon is on the 21st And perigee is on the day before So this is another perigee full moon And what the press has been called a super moon even though it's not particularly super and so if you got to see the february perigee moon that was really quite nice but this uh, march uh, perigee moon will be okay too it's not going to be anywhere near as good as the february one the february one was only a couple of hours out from, from perigee whereas this one's going to be a little a bit over a day out from perigee yep. so it's not going to be quite as exciting and again the january perigee moon was a mere 14 hours from perigee, so it's not going to be as good as that one either. Yep. A chart on my ASPO blog site and also on Facebook showing the uh, apparent size of all the full moons of 2019. While you can see that there is a very big difference between the January, February, March perigee moons and the September apogee moon, the difference between the three perigee moons is quite hard to see. And unless you've got a very good memory, it can be quite difficult to tell the difference between the various moons. Daniel Bamberger, an amateur astronomer from Germany, is able to see the difference between the perigee and apogee moons quite clearly. And he gives some instructions about how to go about watching the moon so you can pick this up. That's something that you can try, and it's a good citizen science project. Fantastic. We're not finished yet because later on this week we'll see Jupiter poking its head over the horizon just before midnight. If you would go out around midnight now, you'll see Jupiter, but it's going to be so low above the horizon, it's not going to be uh, particularly interesting. On the 27th, the Moon and Jupiter are close, and you should be able to see them from around about 11.30 or so on the eastern horizon, looking very nice indeed. Now, from a telescopic point of view, it'll be quite some time before evening Jupiter is worthwhile observing. But it's getting up early in the morning. Morning Jupiter is dearly placed for telescopic observation. It's quite high above the northern horizon and will make excellent astrophotography. If you're out and about in the early morning, of course, you will see three bright planets lined up. You have Jupiter, followed by Saturn, then followed by Venus. And later on, towards the end of the week, you'll be able to see Mercury below Venus. In the twilight sky, around about an hour and a half an hour before sunrise, you should be able to see Mercury very well. Now, for us people in the southern hemisphere, this is the best morning apparition of uh, Mercury. So, for people in the northern hemisphere, it's going to be pretty rubbish. For us in the southern hemisphere, we'll get a very good view of Mercury in the morning. So, set your alarm and get up early. Set your alarm and get up early. What's going to happen over the next few days is on the 27th, as I said, the moon will be near Jupiter. And that will make a nice view both in the uh, late in the evening, uh, just before midnight, and the early morning. Then on the 29th and 30th, the moon will be close to Saturn, and that will make a very nice view. Then on April 2nd, the crescent moon will be very close to Venus, making it again a very nice view. And then on April the 3rd, the crescent moon will be close to Mercury. At the end of this month, at the beginning of next month, we'll be able to see the moon climb down the ladder of planets. So those mornings will be very nice as we see the waning moon and then the crescent moon visit each bright planet in turn. And you'll also be able to see Venus and uh, Mercury close together. Now, Venus and Mercury will be coming closer over the coming weeks. They won't be at their best yet, and they'll be at their best for our next broadcast. I should also mention on April 3rd, Mercury will be very close to Neptune. Neptune is around about magnitude 8 at the moment. But it'll be interesting to capture Mercury and Neptune. So Astrophotography will be a little bit tricky because, of course, Mercury is so much brighter than Neptune. There's lots of interesting things happening in the sky. And it's well worth um, um, having a look. Excellent,
0: Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? Yes, well,
2: I do have the tangent for us. And it goes back to the moon. Yep. Uh, we were all part of a citizen science project put together by uh, Terry Lovejoy to uh, use parallax ma- measurements to determine the distance to the moon. Parallax, it's the change in view of an object we see when we move from one position to another. Uh, we use parallax to make fake 3D images for, uh, 3, for 3D image projection. Uh, we use uh, parallax to actually see in 3D, the distances between our eyes. It make the, makes the images of distance, uh, near-distance objects slightly different, so you get 3D vision that way. If you are looking at a distant uh uh, you have to move some kilometres in order to see the hill apparently move against any background. Uh, basically, what you get is people who are anywhere between a hundred kilometres to thousands of kilometres apart to take uh, uh, photographs of the moon and the background stars at uh, the same at the same time. So, uh, and of course, I mentioned we need these background stars. Uh, now, uh, I just mentioned the parallax, and from the point of view of uh, Earth at any one time, the stars are effectively at the same position. So, the distance between myself and uh, Terry Lovejoy, uh, for example, is not enough for to see the uh, the stars move due to due to parallax, but we can very easily see the difference in location between the moon. So, everybody. Uh, got out, got their uh, cameras on tripods, uh, zoomed them to an appropriate uh, uh, zoom to get in the most number of stars and of course the weather gods intervene. Uh, This is also a very interesting use of uh, Twitter, we were coordinating the observations through Twitter, um, which is a great for real time communication. Uh, so, so people were paying lots of attention to the Twitter stream, which mostly consisted of the clouds come over. Oh, they've gone away again. Oh, great. <laughs> No, they come back. And it was, you know, you could, you could feel the tension rising as, uh, and uh, for, uh, for example, for me, in the day would be absolutely clear where I came home, clouds would come over. I got my, my uh, camera set up anyway, uh. Then the clouds cleared. I got really excited, went out uh, uh, about 10 minutes ahead of time to get it set up. Of course, there were clouds over the moon again. And, and exactly the designated time, uh, the clouds had cleared a little bit, but there was still enough to fear. So here's my question, Ian. Yeah.
0: We got the parallax readings from taking photos of the moon with the background stars from... Various positions on the planet. Now, how did we know to work out the percentage error? How did we know where the moon
2: actually was? You take that from the almanac positions of the moon. We know where the moon, where the moon should have been, and we know where the moon and how far away the moon was at that particular time working out where we think how far away it is, it's a simple matter of geometry, although that simple matter of geometry is slightly complicated because of the curvature of the Earth. So you have to account for the fact that uh, the distance between uh, various places is, uh, uh, as, as measured on the uh, on a, a sphere, is, this, is uh, uh, different from the, the direct line-to-line measurement um, so you have to make adjustments for that. So the maths is, is, uh, can be a little bit tricky. Trigonometry. It's trigonometry, yeah. But uh, also uh, you can do parallax measurements on satellites. Uh, my friend uh, Dean Mayo and I have been uh, doing parallax measurements on the International Space Station and the Iridium Flares. So uh, that's, again, it's a very, the International Space Station is a very bright object. He and I are about 40 kilometres apart. So we, if we, uh, at the same uh, universal time, we take images of the International Space Station against the uh, uh, background stars, especially when the space station was uh, going past some very bright stars, like it did uh, last week when it was clouded out completely for me. <laughs> So we take images of the, uh, of the International Space Station at the same time, and we're able to measure the, distance, the difference between the space station's position and a, a one or more reference stars. And then, again, using trigonometry, we're able to calculate the distance to the International Space Station. And we've been able to do fairly well. We've got, uh, got within 10% of the International Space Station's uh, height positions.
0: Fantastic. Now, there's a challenge for our teachers that do both maths and science. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: A bit of real-life learning.
2: Uh, Indeed, indeed.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave.
2: It was a pleasure, Brendan. And hopefully, next time Terry sets up one of these things, we'll have much better skies for it. I'm looking forward to his next suggestion.
0: Yes my observations were blanked out by smoke from the
2: local bushfires. Yeah. Okay. See you, Ian. See you, Raymond. Until next fortnight, then we have even more exciting astronomical things ahead of us. Excellent. Now, don't turn off your microphone yet,
0: Ian, because the next fortnight might be a bit complicated. We might have to delay it a little bit because Jenny and I are going over to Tassie, I'll be doing an interview at the University of Tasmania with one of the researchers there, so we'll probably have to delay our next episode by three or four days.
2: No worries.
0: Take care, mate. Thank you very much once again.
2: It was a pleasure, mate. Always was a pleasure.
0: Good on you. Bye, Ian. Yeah, bye. Okay, here we go with a couple of brief news items for the Astrophys News. First up, name that moon. In July 2018, Scott Shepard and his team at the Carnegie Institute for Science in Hawaii, US, announced the discovery of 12 Jovian moons, new ones, and the public have been invited to name five of them. Suggestions can be submitted on Twitter until April 15, 2019 by sending a tweet to, at Jupiter Lunacy, with written or video recorded reasons for the name Chosen. Include the hashtag, name Jupiter Moons. And we always like to keep up to date with the latest SKA news. This week, Australia was one of seven nations to sign a treaty in Rome, to establish the Intergovernmental Organization, that will deliver the world's largest radio telescope, the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA. Once complete, the SKA will be the largest science facility on the planet, made up of hundreds of dishes in the remote desert regions of South Africa and 132,000 antennas spread over 65 kilometres in the Murchison area in remote Western Australia. Now, over the last few years, we've done quite a few interviews featuring the development of the SKA precursors in Australia. And we've also interviewed Jacinta Del Hayes. She's now working over in South Africa, and she's making an announcement. Jacinta Del Hayes and Daniel Cunnemar are launching a podcast called The Cosmic Savannah. It's all about awesome astronomy happening in Africa. So you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or however you get your podcasts. It will be well worth listening to. And to keep up to date with that African astronomy, it's well worth following at JDelHaze, that's at J-D-E-L-H-A-I-Z-E, and at Daniel Kanema on Twitter. We'll see you again in early April. I yeah.